3. <coughs> Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued, they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who, confined, who were confined in the prison. Each his own dream, and each dream with his own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house? Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me. And on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There are three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and that birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hands. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. It, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you on this Lord's Day. We especially want to welcome those of you who might be visiting us as our guests. Thank you so much for joining us with your presence. We hope and pray that today's service will be an encouragement and a blessing to you now. Would you join me in bowing your heads as we ask for God's blessing? Father, as we now have heard your word being publicly read, we pray, Spirit of God, that you would minister to us. You know, Lord, where we are at, what we have been through, and what we are currently going through. And we ask now that you would illumine our hearts and refresh our spirits so that once again, our hope in you would be uh, revitalized and our commitment to you would be renewed so that we would truly live out our calling as ambassadors to a broken and dying world. Father, we ask that you would encourage us, edify us, and most importantly, remind us of the hope that we have of eternal life with you. Father, we pray now that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. So I kind of have this reputation of being a nerd. Yeah, I kind of have this reputation of being a nerd, and I guess it's somewhat deserved evidence by the stack of books I have piled up on my nightstand, the heavy glasses weighing down on my face as I speak to you, and really the lack of interest in all things recreational and sports that so many of my peers are obsessed with. I am, for all intents and purposes, a bona fide nerd. I can admit that. 
But one thing that you may be shocked to discover about this nerd is that I almost failed second grade. It's true. (laughs) You're probably thinking, how in the world does a person fail second grade? I mean, you almost have to want to fail on purpose to try and fail second grade. So what happened, nerd? What did you do? Or what did you not do that jeopardized your chances of going into third grade the following year? Here's the answer. I could not count past 99. I couldn't count past 99. I don't know what it was in that mental development at that time. I just couldn't figure out the pattern of numbering from two digits to three. And when my second grade teacher told my tiger mother that my child, her child, would possibly have to repeat second grade, she simply looked at her with the scary tone. She's always said to me, no, you are not going to do that to my son. If you do, you'll ruin him. And I think Mrs. Roscoe got the subtext. I'll ruin you if you ruin me. And thankfully, Mrs. Roscoe got the hint. I moved on to third grade, but not before I went through a grueling summer of Korean tutors with very heavy wooden sticks teaching me about the principles of numbering. Now, I can look back on my life back then and laugh about it. But during that time, it was no laughing matter because for me that back then, the idea of me being stuck in second grade while all of my classmates, all of my friends, the girl I had a crush on back then, sorry, honey, was just so unbearable that I knew my mother's prophetic words would have come true. I would have been ruined. And I'm willing to bet every one of you could relate to that as well. Not because you almost failed second grade like I almost did, but because you too have had moments, had seasons of your life where you felt stuck. Stuck? Yeah, stuck. S-T-U-C-K. What do we mean by that one syllable, sibilant word? What is the significance of What is the meaning of stuck? Well, I came across this description from an author that I personally like, Anneli Rufus, an award-winning author. She wrote a book entitled Stuck, and this is how she describes it. Take a listen. Quote, I'm stuck. We say it in despair, in desperation, in denial. It becomes a punchline, an excuse. Well, hey, I'm stuck. We say it about our jobs, our relationships, our families, and our habits in our homes. We say the world's passing me by. We say, oops, I did it again. Or, I can't get started, I'm missing out. In lands of plenty, in the lap of luxury, in the fast lane, we're stuck doing over and over things we do not want to do, stuck in places we do not want to be, stuck with people we do not want to see, stuck with stuff, stuck without enough. What irony. In all of history, no population anywhere has ever been so free as we, and yet somehow we all feel stuck. We say so sadly, angrily, resentfully, regretfully. It's so embarrassing to be exactly where you were before, to have to say so when folks ask, so are you still dot, 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 end quote? What does it mean to be stuck? To be stuck is to have a mindset where you feel like you've been left behind, long forgotten, while everyone else has moved on, and everyone else notices them, but they never notice you. That's what it means to be stuck. And the question is, what kind of impact, what kind of influence would a person have when they feel like they're stuck in life? Well, when you consider the emotions I just read in that quote, sad, angry, resentful, regretful, I think it's clear that you would not be a positive influence and not make a good impact to the people around you, including your own family. And so the question is, how do we as Christians live out our calling given to us by God of being a blessing to the world as he calls his people to be. Well, that's what today's sermon is going to be all 
about. We're continuing today our sermon series, The Gospel in the Family Life of Joseph. And the whole point of this series is to see how the gospel message gives us the power to transform our family from being broken to being a source of blessing in the world. And today we're going to see how Joseph, the main character of today's story, how he was able to overcome a profound season of being stuck so that he could be at a better place in his life where he would be better prepared to once again encounter his estranged family who would eventually come back into his life. And it is my hope and prayer that today's message would also equip and empower you to overcome the seasons and moments of life where you will feel stuck in life if you currently are or you will be at one point. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today. First, we're going to talk about Joseph's prolonged pattern of being stuck. Then we're going to talk about Joseph's possible bitterness of being stuck. And then we're going to end it with Joseph's powerful salvation from being stuck. His prolonged pattern of being stuck, the possible bitterness of being stuck, and finally, the powerful salvation that he was given so that he would not be stuck. Let's begin with the first point, Joseph's prolonged pattern of being stuck. So if this is your first Sunday with us, let me do a quick recap so you can catch up with the rest of us. Joseph is the youngest of 11 brothers who also happens to be the most hated, the most despised amongst his brothers. Why? Because he is the most favorite child of their father, Jacob. In fact, Joseph's brothers hate him so much. They loathe him with such hatred that they initially conspired to murder him in cold blood. But then they decided instead to just sell him off to a bunch of slave traffickers, a group of people known as Ishmaelites. So when Joseph is sold to the Ishmaelites, he gets trafficked across the Middle East, ends up in Egypt, where he is sold to his new master, a very prominent Egyptian official by the name of Potiphar. And as Joseph is working for this man, he captures the attention of his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, and she initially attempts to seduce him to become his new boy toy. But when it's clear that he would not respond, he, she elevates her aggression towards him in the form of sexual harassment day and night, constantly telling him to sleep with her. But when it was clear that he simply would not respond in a moment of frustration and desperation, she attempts to rape Joseph. Okay? And he flees and runs away from her, making her look like the fool. And now she is a woman scored who needs to get revenge. And so what does she do? She informs her husband, Potiphar, Joseph's master, that Joseph attempted to rape her when, in fact, it was the other way around. And what does Potiphar do? Well, as the fool that he was, he believes his wife and in this fit of murderous rage throws Joseph in the worst prison out of all of Egypt, the prisons reserved for those who personally offended Pharaoh, Pharaoh's prison. Now it's at this point we're now ready to engage our text, so let's do that now. We're starting in verse 1. We read this. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. Okay, pause it right there, your attention, please. If you have a pen or highlighter, you want to underline that phrase, sometime. Sometime, you see it twice in the verses I just read, the first being in verse 1, and then again in verse 4. And what that phrase tells us is that a prolonged period of time transpired from the moment Joseph entered into the prison of Pharaoh to the time he had to attend to these officials' affair, the cupbearer and the baker. Now, let's just pause for a moment and consider Joseph's situation. He is an innocent man accused of a crime that he did not commit in the worst prisons of the ancient world. He is an innocent man rotting in a terrible place, right? 
And here's the thing that you need to understand about Egyptian prison systems. There was no such thing as parole. There was no such thing as early release for good behavior. No, the only way a prisoner of Egypt could be set free is if the person who imprisoned them chose to set them free. Okay, which means in this instance, being in the Pharaoh's prison, the only person who could release Joseph was none other than Pharaoh himself. But here's the problem. Pharaoh doesn't even know Joseph exists, let alone that he's rotting in his personal prison. Why is that? Because if you recall from last uh, sermon that I preached in this series, Potiphar, his former master, abused his office as captain of the guard, abused his authority, and placed Joseph in this prison without anyone knowing. You see, Potiphar did one of those black ops CIA tactics of putting someone in prison off the books. Why? To ensure that Joseph would never be found, therefore making him permanently stuck in the worst place that a person could be back then. Now, fortunately, the chances of any of us being in this exact predicament that Joseph is in is very slim. But unfortunately, the chances of all of us feeling like we're in the same predicament Joseph is in is very high. Why is that? Because the idea of being in prison is not limited to the literal. And what I mean by that is there are so many people around us who are so far from an actual prison, yet they're living their lives as if they're serving a life sentence. Let me give you an example. There are some people who are imprisoned by their debilitating and disgusting addictions, whether it be to alcohol, to drugs, to pornography, to gambling, to whatever, that is robbing them of the joy of a life of self-respect and self-control. They're stuck. There are some people who are imprisoned by lifelong illness, incurable diseases that keep them from being stuck of having a life of vitality, of health, of joy in their very bodies. There are some people who are imprisoned by economic poverty and financial duress that is keeping them stuck in a situation that they can never know the joy of providing and preparing for their kids financially. There are some people who are imprisoned in very toxic relationships and dysfunctional homes that is robbing them in a situation where they could ever have a happily ever after in their own family life. There are some people who are imprisoned by their own fears, irrational phobias, and paranoias that is keeping them stuck in a state of mind that makes them feel like they are so broken and dysfunctional. There are so many quote-unquote prisons that people go through in this life that robs them of the kind of joy and freedom God intended his people to have. And one such person that could totally fit this bill is a woman by the name of Joni Erickson Tata. Do you guys know who she is? Joni Erickson Tata, she's an amazing woman now, I think, in her late 80s. But back when she was 17 years old, she had a freak diving board accident that made her into a paralyzed quadriplegic right away from the neck down. At 17 years of age, the moment of life where so much opportunity is ahead of you, where you could have limitless possibilities of who you could be and what you could do, all of that was snatched away from her to when she was now serving a life-term sentence as a prisoner in her own broken body. You can just imagine the frustration, the fears, the fury that she would have felt back then. And indeed, she does admit in one of her books that when she was at this point in her life, she had two recurring thoughts constantly and exclusively. Thought number one was, how can I kill myself in the most easiest, most effective way? Thought number two, how can I feel more sorry for myself today than I did yesterday? Those were the only thoughts that she thought about constantly. That is until a family friend once visited her at her home, and they proceeded to have a conversation, and within that conversation, he uttered 
10 words that completely changed her perspective. It was as if she was given a brand new healthy body and had her health and joy back restored. Now you're probably thinking, what possible 10 words could that man have spoken to her that would have made her feel that way? Well, let me read it to you in the context of what she wrote in her book. She said this, that night, Steve, the friend, leaned across the family table and said, God put you in that chair, Joni, the wheelchair. I don't know why, but if you will trust him instead of fighting him, you will find out why. If not in this life, then in the next. He let you break your neck, and perhaps I'm here to help you discover at least a few reasons why. Steve paused and then summed it up with 10 words that would change my life. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. The sentence hit me like a brick. Its simplicity made it sound trite, but it nevertheless enticed me like an enigmatic riddle. It seemed to hold some deep and mysterious truth that piqued my fascination. Tell me more, I said, end quote. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves? Now, if there was ever a crazy-sounding idea, that has to be it. Because if we're honest with ourselves, it just sounds ridiculously false. There is no possible truth that could ever emerge from that kind of an idea. There is no possible good that could ever be a fruit as a result of believing such an idea. Could anything good ever come out of the concept that God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves? For many of us, we would say, no, it doesn't. But hold on to your skepticism as we continue on in this study of Joseph, because I believe he will challenge you to think differently. And so to do that, now let's go to my next point. Joseph's possible bitterness of being stuck. Pick it up where we left off, starting in verse 4. It says, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody, and one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Okay, pause it right there. Come on back. Here we read of these two Egyptian officials placed in the same prison that Joseph was in. And when we first read their titles, cupbearer, baker, doesn't sound too impressive. Maybe it's our many years of watching shows like Downton Abbey that's coloring our view of how we should look at these individuals. Oh, they're a bunch of nameless, lowly servants that the master of the house could be clueless of, could care less about. But if you actually did a little background study of their actual titles, you come to find they're nothing of the sort. Consider this explanation from Bible scholar R. Kent Hughes. He says this, As the royal cupbearer and the royal baker, these two men had held the life of Pharaoh in their hands because they were charged with the purity and quality of his food. Egyptian cupbearers were sometimes called pure of hands, referencing that a cupbearer must be a man of integrity because he tasted the wine before it came to the king. Likely, the baker was responsible for the menu served to Pharaoh because his office can be rendered royal table scribe, end quote. It turns out, these guys, they were a big deal because they had a big responsibility that immediately impacted Pharaoh. Their very jobs put the Pharaoh's life into their very hands. And these were the two individuals that Joseph had the responsibility of serving as their assistant, as their attendee. Now, pause for a moment, and let's think about this setup. 
okay? Here are these two individuals whose very jobs require them to be a men of integrity, men of faithful loyalty to their master, just exactly the way Joseph was to his master, Potiphar. But we come to find they're nothing of the sort because in verse 1, it tells us that they sinned against Pharaoh. And the way that's written, it's not referring to their mild incompetence or that they were juvenile and not taking their job responsibly, like spitting in Pharaoh's cup or rubbing his bread under their armpit or something stupid like that. No, these guys did something atrocious, something really wicked that incurred the wrath of Pharaoh. What this tells us is that these two individuals were wretched, messed up people, right? Now, imagine if you're Joseph. You are serving, you are the slave of these two individuals who are actually guilty of being what you're accused of being, but you're not. But everyone thinks that you are. And now you have to serve the likes of them? How would you feel? Can you imagine? Wouldn't you be angry? Wouldn't you be resentful? Wouldn't you be bitter? Now, truth be told, some of you guys don't even have to imagine it because you or someone you love have gone through something similar to some varying degree. Some examples, a very beautiful but older single woman who would be an amazing wife, who would be an awesome mother, for whatever reason, cannot get a date. Even when she pursues certain men, they always turn her down. Why? Because they always assume no one can be that beautiful and that old at the same time without there being a good reason. Maybe she has issues. Maybe she has baggage. Maybe she has drama, but for whatever reason, She's untouchable, so we're going to leave her alone. And now you have an amazing woman who is stuck in her singleness. Or maybe you have a very competent Asian-American serving at a prestigious firm in the city, and yet every time an opportunity for promotion comes up, he gets passed by. Why? Because the upper echelon says, well, he's, he's one of those Asian guys. They tend to be kind of passive, a little quiet. You know, surely he doesn't have the cutting-edge leadership skills required to lead this organization, so he gets passed by. It doesn't matter if he graduated top of his class at Columbia. It doesn't matter if he's the most hardworking of his team. No, we're going to get Patrick, dude from Yale. He's going he's gonna to get the job. He's the most qualified one. And now you have a very competent person stuck in a job that's going nowhere. Or maybe you have a devout Christian who loves the next generation and wants to serve the community, and he goes for an open spot on the school board. But as soon as people find out he's a genuine Christian, loves the Lord, almost immediately he's branded as a hater, as a bigot, as a Trump supporter, right? And his name is taken off the ballot as an unviable candidate. And now he's stuck with a reputation within his community of someone who just craves power and hates people's rights. The persona that the media has of devout Christians today. There's so many people now who are stuck in their lives because of false perceptions that people impute to them of either being wrong, of being wicked, or being incompetent or incapable, when in fact the exact opposite is true. And when people find themselves in that kind of a situation, how can they not be tempted to be bitter, just like Joseph was being tempted to be bitter in this moment? But here's what's so shocking. Our brother Joseph doesn't fall to that bitterness whatsoever. Why? Well, listen to what it says in verse 6 and 7. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? What's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. Joseph is refusing to be bitter in a situation where it's so easy to be bitter. How do I know? Because he actually cares about someone other than himself. 
In fact, he even goes more than that. He actually cares about two individuals who constantly remind him of how wronged he was, of how unfairly he has been treated. Take a listen to this explanation from Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid. He says, these men were Egyptians and Joseph had no reason to be bonded to them. What did they have to worry about compared to what Joseph had gone through? He could have easily left them to their worries and gone about his business. Isn't that what we so often do in the midst of suffering? Suffering turns us in ourselves. Our own fears and worries become all-consuming, leaving us with little time or energy to think about others. We desire and expect others to inquire about our sorrows, but the last thing that we want is the burden of someone else's troubles. We have enough of our own already. Yet Joseph saw these men as human beings and cared enough about their concerns to ask them what was going on. What's he saying? He's saying Joseph, instead of giving in to bitterness, chose to be the better person and show kindness and compassion. How could he do that? Could it be that maybe, just maybe, he bought into the idea of what our passage teaches? That God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves? See, now we see something good coming out of such a crazy idea. And what is that? It's what our passage teaches. And that is it is possible for a person to be stuck in their life and still come out of it as a better person in spite of being stuck rather than a bitter person because they are stuck. That, my friends, is the good that emerges from the concept of God permitting what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Now, I know the question that is ruminating in your mind right now is how exactly could that be? How does that work? What is the the, the dynamic in which that kind of situation could emerge? Well, that's a great series of questions. Let me see if I can answer it by going to my final point, Joseph's powerful salvation from being stuck. So Joseph was stuck in Pharaoh's prison. And remember what I described as a person who's stuck. They have a mindset where they feel like they've been left behind and long forgotten while everyone else has moved on And everyone else notices them, but they never notice you. This is the mindset that Joseph was in, which meant he was very eager to get out of the situation that was creating this mindset within him. He was eager to get out. Listen to how he talks in verses uh, 14 and 15. He says, only remember me when it is well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Do you see how Joseph is speaking in a tone of real painstaking desperation, going to such detail of the, of the, of the problem situation that he's in, to the outgoing cupbearer? This is clearly a man who is very eager, very desperate to be not stuck in his life. And yet, as desperate as he was, he still did not succumb to being bitter because he was stuck. How? Why? How could he do this? Why was he able to do this? Listen to what he says in verses 7 and 8. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why your face is downcast today? They said to him, we've had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So up to now, we haven't really talked about these two dreams that these two officials had, so let's, let's do that right now. So the cupbearer and the baker, they had weird ominous dreams and it's not the typical weird ominous dreams that we typically get throughout our lives no this dream had a different flavor to it it felt very real and therefore something to be taken very seriously and not just dismissed as a harmless dream that we typically do after a nightmare which means these guys were very interested in figuring out what in the world does this dream mean what 
is going on. But here's the problem. They had no way of interpreting it. And in that context, that's when Joseph emerged and says, guys, no worries. I have been given the power to interpret dreams. Now, here's where you need to pay attention. By telling these two people his power to interpret dreams, Joseph is telling us of how he has the power to not be bitter for being stuck. Listen again to what he says in verse 8. Do not interpretations belong to God? By asking this rhetorical question, Joseph is not just revealing the source of his power to interpret dreams. He's revealing his source to have the power to not be bitter because of his stuck situation. In a nutshell, he's saying, because God is with me, I am not bitter in spite of me being stuck in life. It's kind of like a, um, what is it called? a syllogism. And it would be broken down like this. Premise number one, interpretations belong to God. Premise number two, Joseph can interpret dreams. And then conclusion, therefore God is with Joseph. See, if Joseph is able to do something that only comes from God's power, clearly that is telling Joseph, God is with me. And that's exactly what he wants us to understand. Because when God gave Joseph the power to interpret dreams correctly, He knew God was telling him, Joseph, I have not forgotten you. I have not left you behind. And because that is so, Joseph knew that even though he may have been stuck in his life, he was not stuck in his relationship with God. And that is what changed everything. And Christian, guess what? He is saying the same message to you in the gospel. In the gospel. You know, if you really want to boil down the core message of the gospel, it's this. I promise, this is God talking, I promise I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That is the core essence of what the gospel is teaching. I am with you. I am for you. I will never leave you behind. I will never forget you, let alone forget you for long. That is the promise God gives to every person in this room, any person who is in earshot of hearing the gospel message. Now I know for some of you who are currently going through or have gone through a real bad situation where you feel so stuck right now, It's hard to believe. And you might be thinking, Pastor, how can I be confident? How can I be assured that God is with me the way God was with Joseph? My response, it's in the message of the gospel itself. You see, just like God gave Joseph the power to properly interpret dreams, God has given everyone, all of us, the power to properly interpret our stuck situation because of the gospel. Let me explain. When we feel stuck, again, we feel like we're lost. We're long forgotten. We've been left behind, resulting us feeling as if we're alone and abandoned in the midst of our sorrows, in the midst of our troubles. It's the same idea that was conveyed by that beautiful spiritual nobody knows that was sung by the slaves in our wretched history back then. Do you guys remember that song? It goes like this. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrows. On and on, it just says that over and over. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrows. But here's where the beautiful message of the gospel comes through. The gospel says, no, there is someone who does know your troubles and then some, who does know your sorrows and even more, right? Because there is one person who has been in situations where he was stuck far greater than any situation of stuckness that we could ever be in this life. Because he was long forsaken, he was long forgotten, and he was long left behind by everyone, including Oh, it's the battery. I should have changed the battery. Let's push through. Battery, hold on. Holy Spirit, please. 
Okay. Oh. Test, test. Okay. We're going to go old school now. Back in the 90s. So here's the situation. When a person feels stuck and abandoned, they feel like nobody knows the trouble. Nobody knows their sorrows. But the gospel tells us there is someone who knows our troubles and then some our sorrows and then some because he was forsaken by the most important person of all, God the Father. And who is this person? You all know. It's God the Son. When he came into the world as a human being, Jesus Christ, to suffer for the sins of humanity. And why did our Jesus do this? So that you would know that in spite of your self-righteousness, in spite of your shadiness, in spite of your sinisterness, in spite of your sins, he promised, I will never forget you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You see, God has every right to do all those things to us. He has every right to keep us stuck in our sins where we are long forgotten, where we are left behind by him. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because he is filled with such amazing, astounding, merciful, forgiving love. And when you understand that, now you are empowered by the message of the gospel to interpret your stuck situations properly. You have been given the same power Joseph has. You now can properly interpret the moment of your stuckness, the seasons of stuckness, to where instead of seeing your troubles as being unique and exclusive, your sorrows as being one of a kind and therefore unmatchable and therefore unrelatable, no. You see your troubles as a small sampling of God's greater trouble that he went through for you so that you could be with him. Where you see your sorrows as a small sampling of Jesus' greater sorrow that he voluntarily endured for you so that if you put your faith in him, you know one day all those troubles, all those sorrows will be permanently gone and you will be with him for eternity. That, my friends, is how we are able to properly interpret our stuck seasons of life so that when we do, we don't become bitter, we become better. The gospel gives us a better perspective of God's merciful love because it helps us to understand in some small way and saw some small sampled uh, experience of the sorrows and troubles our Lord Jesus went for us so that he can make that promise, I will never forget you, I will never abandon you. This is how we are able to overcome the inevitable moments of your life where you feel stuck, where you've been long forgotten and left behind while everyone else has moved on. God will never move on without you. And this is the hope that you need to cling to, my friends, especially when I know that many of you right now are going through a season where you do feel so stuck and so forgotten. Can I remind you, my friends, of the God who is with you and the God who is faithfully there, who will never leave you behind, who will never forsake you. This is my encouragement to all of you. I hope and pray that you will always hold on to it every day from now on. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to remember these truths. That just like Joseph, you have endowed us with power in the message of the gospel. So that in the inevitable moments and seasons of our lives where we just feel so lost, so stuck, so forsaken and forgotten, that we would remember that you are here. And not only are you here, you give us the hope that we will not stay here indefinitely because there is a hope embedded in your memorable love of us the hope of not only forgiveness of sins not only eternal life but also being set free from all that 
confines and imprisons us here and now. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters, especially those who are going through moments and seasons of life where they feel so stuck. God, would you be with them and encourage them by this message. And may they have the faith of Joseph and even greater because they know that their Savior has come and assured them of the promise that they have in the gospel message. May this always be true of us and may it be lived out so that we would become better people, not bitter, because of the stuckiness of our lives. Be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.